Uh, my name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us as, uh, as we prepare ourselves for 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, which you can uh, turn uh, to that in your Bible or on your tablet or phone or whatever it might be. I want to tell you a little story. As a high school senior growing up in the Houston area, a little town called uh, Baytown, home of Gary Busey, that's our uh, slogan, I, uh, I grew up there and uh, I went on a, uh, a church youth trip to some big youth event in Dallas as a senior in high school. The plan was for us to attend this con- uh, conference for a couple of days and then after that to go to this uh, water park. Now, as a 17-year-old, I was not at all excited about the conference, but I loved water parks. And so the idea of going to the water park was really exciting to me. Unfortunately, I didn't get to actually attend the conference or the, uh, the water park uh, because of some events that happened uh, a little bit before that. And so we got to Dallas. We took a big van up there from, uh, from Houston. We, took a, uh, we got to Dallas, and uh, it was around dinner time or so. We arrived in downtown to a particular section uh, just north of downtown that has a number of restaurants. And, uh, and so we got off the van, and the youth pastor told us, he said, you can go eat wherever you want, but we just need to reconvene at this particular time at this particular place. And so we said, great. Unfortunately, he was not that explicit about where we could eat because across the street from us was a, uh, a restaurant that is known for chicken and for somewhat scantily clad waitstaff. And so as a 17-year-old, I thought it would be a really good idea to go to that particular uh, restaurant, and a couple of my buddies did as well. And, uh, and so we went, and we ate, and then we were back in time at the particular place at the particular time, and, uh, and that was that, except for the fact that I was a 17-year-old unregenerate teenager, and so I could not keep my big mouth shut, and so I started telling everybody where it was that, uh, that we went uh, to eat, and as you can imagine, that information then got back to the youth pastor. Now, this youth pastor had only been the youth pastor of the church for uh, about a month or so, and so he's kind of still feeling it, uh, it out and trying to kind of prove himself, and so he has to think, how do I respond to this situation where a couple of uh, the seniors have gone to this inappropriate restaurant and then told everyone about it? And so he got this idea that the response to it would be to make myself and my two friends purchase a bus ticket back to Houston and, uh, and that we were going to do that. And so, unfortunately, that particular bus, the next bus that was leaving, was at 10 p.m. So, that meant that we had to take a red-eye bus back to, uh, to Houston, and that meant that my parents had to drive 45 minutes from Baytown into Houston to meet us at the Houston bus terminal, uh, the Greyhound bus terminal there at about 3 a.m. or so, which was when the bus was getting in. Now, that was actually a blessing uh, to me. I didn't know it, but that was a blessing because my parents are then left with this uh, interesting quandary where they're kind of frustrated and angry at me for eating at this particular restaurant, but they're also super frustrated and angry at this youth pastor for making us buy a ticket on a red eye back to, uh, to Houston without any adult supervision whatsoever. And so I actually didn't get punished because of, uh, of that, and so that was, uh, that was great. But before the, uh, the long bus ride back to Houston, we're sitting there at the hotel, getting prepared to go uh, to the bus terminal, and, uh, and one of the adult volunteers came up to me, and he said, uh, you know, Jeff, don't you, you're a senior, kids look up to you, uh, don't you want to be a good example? And you know, uh, being the smart aleck that I was, I said, well, not really. 
And he said, but don't you want to be a good Christian? Man, at, at nine, uh, not at nine, at, uh, at 17 years old, my life was an absolute uh, mess. Depression, lust, materialism, pride, all, fear of man, all of these kinds of things. And, uh, and so I, I looked at him and I said, you know what? I don't even know what that means. I said, I, I, don't, I don't really even know if I am a Christian. Now, I don't know if you've ever shared the gospel with someone before, but whenever they give you something like that, it's like lobbing a pitch right over the plate, just ready to hit out of the gospel park. But instead, this adult volunteer just looked me right in the eyes and said, of course you are. And that was it. End of conversation, nothing else after that. Even when we got back home, whenever everybody else got back home, I got home a couple hours later, but whenever everybody else got back home, never followed up with me whatsoever. I wish that that pastor would have instead shared the gospel with me and in particular, maybe even told me, read the book of 1 John, because that is what 1 John is about. One of the primary goals of the, the, the book of 1 John is answering this question. How do I know that I am loved by God? How do I know that I'm born again? How do I know that I'm actually a Christian? How do I know that I'm saved? That's one of the primary purposes of the book of 1 John. And so we will be in this book for about the next 10 months, and then after that we'll spend two months in 2 John and 3 John. So for about the next year in the life of Parkway, we're going to be in this particular book. So I want to pray for us, and then we will uh, we'll dive into the text together. As I often do, I, uh, I want to ask you just to pray for yourself first before I pray. And then would you also pray for those around you as well, that the Lord would give us a collective love for His Word and not be distracted. And then would you pray for me for faithfulness and boldness? So, Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We pray that You would incline our hearts to Your testimonies. Open our eyes that we might behold the glory of Your Son and the glory of Your Word. Unite our hearts to fear Your name and satisfy us this morning with Your steadfast love. We ask because You're good and You do good. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we begin, I want to talk about 1 John. It's kind of like a song. A song that you recognize but you don't really know all of the, uh, the lyrics to. Many of you know uh, that I am one quarter Japanese, and so therefore I love uh, karaoke. But I also love, in addition to doing karaoke, I love watching other people do karaoke, especially whenever it's very obvious they don't really know the words to a song, they know the chorus. This is a song they really love, and uh, they've chosen to do this song, and yet it's very obvious they don't actually know uh, all of the lyrics. Uh, they know the chorus but they don't know the verses. One of my favorite examples of that is seeing someone try to do We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel, right? Everybody knows that song. Nobody knows the lyrics. It's got Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio and Richard Nixon and Mafia and Space Monkeys. I don't know what that is. Uh, I guess maybe something having to do with whatever. But uh, uh, Rock and Roller Cola Wars is one of the lyrics from it. Uh, no one really knows all of the lyrics. In fact, I saw a, a, a video where Billy Joel... Uh, was singing it. This is on the, the YouTubes. And, uh, and so Billy Joel is singing this, and he completely forgets the lyrics, and he wrote the song. Uh, so anyway, I, I digress. That's kind of like First John. It's this song. It's familiar. There's familiar refrains. There's chorus that we understand. Well, we're all familiar with uh, verses from First John, like God is love, 
and God is light. And we love because God first loved us. But very few of us have ever really heard the entire book exposited. Very few of us have ever actually done a really in-depth study of the, uh, the book of 1 John. So I'm really excited to begin that for us uh, this morning. But before we really jump into the text, I want to give a bit of context, a bit of a kind of an overview of a few of the things that uh, you need to know about 1 John. And maybe a few things you don't need to know, but you just want to know about 1 John. As we talk about uh, sometimes that uh, here at Parkway, our goal is to give you everything you need to know and a little bit uh, more. So without further ado, here are three things that you need to know about 1 John. Three things to know about 1 John. The first one being authorship, the second one being the historical context, and the third one being purpose. Authorship, historical context, and purpose. I'm going to begin with authorship. Now, when we uh, preached through the book of Romans, which we just uh, finished uh, a few months ago, authorship was really easy. What is the very first word in the book of Romans? Paul. That's the very first word, by the way, in the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians. But besides the Pauline epistles, most of the other books of the New Testament are technically anonymous. That includes uh, all four Gospels, the book of Hebrews, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So church history has given us particular names to attach to the Gospels and uh, the epistles of John and, and so forth, but those, the Bible itself doesn't actually say, which means we probably shouldn't be too dogmatic about who the uh, author is. That said, I think that the Apostle John wrote this book for a few reasons that I want to share with you. Why do I think that the Apostle John wrote this book and not some other John or somebody not named John or whatever it might be? Three reasons for that. First, because church tradition has held that the Apostle John wrote this book since uh, the early second century. Uh, In fact, a guy named Irenaeus was a disciple of a guy named Polycarp, which is a great name, Polycarp, who was alleged to be a disciple of the Apostle John himself. And Irenaeus says that Polycarp taught that the Apostle John was the author. So that's, that seems pretty reliable. That's like me saying that my dad told me something that his dad had actually uh, witnessed. So that's the first reason, because church tradition uh, really has never disputed that the Apostle John was, uh, was the author of 1 John. A second reason is because there's a very pronounced relationship. We'll see this as we go through the book, even uh, in our text this morning. There is a pronounced relationship between uh, what we call uh, 1 John and what we call the Gospel of John. And uh, in regards to the vocabulary, in regards to their writing style, these kinds of things, there's a very profound, pronounced relationship between these two books. So if we accept that the Apostle John wrote the Gospel, then it makes sense that he also wrote this epistle. Third, as we'll see this week and also next week, there's a very strong emphasis in the book of 1 John on eyewitness testimony. So it's really likely that one of Jesus' disciples wrote this. And since, as we will also see, some of the themes that 1 John uh, deals with, we know historically tend to kind of march, uh, match what's happening in later first century. And since John is the last apostle to, uh, to die, then it seems likely that he is the one who authored it. So I think John wrote it, but it doesn't ultimately matter. When it comes to canonicity, I don't know if you know that word or not, but canonicity refers to how do we know which books were actually inspired, uh, recognizing which books that uh, actually belong to uh, Scripture. And uh, so when it comes to canonicity, the early church had a requirement of apostolicity. 
That means somehow connected to an apostle. That doesn't mean that an apostle had to write it, but it does mean that someone who's closely connected to an apostle had to write it. So, for instance, uh, Mark uh, wasn't an apostle, but he was actually a traveling companion of Paul, and he was a ministry associate of Peter. Or Luke wasn't actually an apostle, but he was a close uh, ministry uh, assistant to Paul as well. So, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if John wrote it or if a ministry partner wrote it on the basis of his eyewitness testimony. What ultimately matters is that the Holy Spirit inspired it. So, that's authorship. Second thing I want to talk about is historical context. You're familiar with this, but every book of the Bible is written within a particular historical context. None of the books of the Bible are written within a vacuum. None of the books of the Bible are just like a systematic theology or something like that. All of them are written to a particular people in a particular time, in a particular place with a particular purpose. And, uh, and so the historical context is often really important for us if we're going to understand the purpose of the book. A really good example of this is the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're familiar with what's going on in 1 Corinthians, there's sexual morality, there's division within the church, there's fights over spiritual gifts, there's lawsuits among believers, there's people getting drunk during communion. It's basically this big Jerry Springer episode, if you remember that train wreck. But that's, so that's 1 Corinthians, but whenever it comes to 1 John, kind of piecing together the historical context is a little bit more difficult. We know from the book that there was a serious false teaching that was creeping into the church. We know that many people had left the church as a result of this false teaching, as a result of this heresy permeating the church. And we know that many others seemed to be confused and fearful uh, about what was going on in light of this. So that much is certain. That much we know uh, as we kind of reconstruct the context based on the book. But what is uncertain is what exactly this false teaching was, what exactly this heresy was. So sometimes you might hear uh, words like uh, Gnosticism or Serinthianism or Docetism or something like that. And it could have been a variant of one of those things. If you don't know those terms, you don't need to know them right now. Uh, But it could have been a variant uh, of one of those. But unfortunately, it's nearly impossible for us to perfectly identify the exact heresy the exact false teaching, because none of those things that we are aware of uh, seem to perfectly fit what the author is combating. That said, we don't actually need to know the the label or the name of the particular heresy, the particular false teaching, in order to identify the dangers that uh, the apostle is warning us against. Whether it's one of these known heresies like Gnosticism or Serenthianism or whatever it might be, or it's something else entirely that has not survived historical records, we can say a few things about the heresy that's permeating the church. On the basis of just reading 1 John, we know that this is what's happening in the church. This is part of the, kind of the, the, the uh, implications, the fruit of this false teaching. First, there seems to be a denial of the incarnation and the humanity of Christ, of the Son of God. Now, in the 21st century, especially 21st century America, if you were to poll your neighbors, which one is more difficult to believe, that Jesus was human or that Jesus is divine? Almost every one of them would have said, it's more difficult for me to believe that Jesus is divine. That is not the case in, uh, in the first century Roman Empire. It would have been much more difficult for them to accept Jesus' humanity because they had these existing philosophical presuppositions that the material world was somehow lesser than the spiritual world. 
Right, this, this goes all the way back to Plato and other Greek philosophers who, uh, who, who taught that uh, all that is good is spiritual. It's immaterial, it's ethereal, while the material world, the physical world, was, uh, was, was gross, was distorted, was, uh, was wicked, was evil, was bad. So the truly elect, the truly saved, according to this, uh, what's called a dualism of platonic thought, the truly saved were kind of set free from their bodily uh, prisons. To, to misquote the, the great theologian Madonna, that uh, it's a material world, but I am an immaterial boy. That's kind of the idea there. That would have resonated with uh, this sort of dualism that existed within the Roman Empire uh, in uh, you know, the first century and before that. And if that's the case, if the soul is really all that matters, no pun intended, if the soul is all that matters and the bodily is of very little use, it's of much lesser uh, significance, then what we do with our bodies is much less important. So, uh, so John also writes about the importance of sanctification, that, uh, that is putting sin to death, that if you know and love Jesus, that you recognize that what you do with your bodies in regards to joining them with a prostitute, in regards to getting drunk, in regards to all of these sorts of things, this matters as an implication of the fact that our bodies matter. And, uh, and so if you love and trust Jesus, your disposition towards sin is going to change. And then lastly, another aspect of the false teaching, again, since the body doesn't really matter, all that matters is the spirit or the soul, then it doesn't matter if you actually physically love your brothers and sisters. In fact, if someone didn't believe this heresy, then they really weren't your brother and sister, and you could completely neglect them, even though they were hungry or poor or whatever it uh, might be. And uh, so John writes about the importance of loving brothers and sisters, not just giving lip service to that, but sacrificially serving them, laying down your life for them, loving others as an implication of love for Christ. So whatever this exact heresy, whether it was Gnosticism or Docetism or Serenthianism, whatever it might be, whatever this exact heresy, those were the elements. There's a denial of the incarnation uh, based on Greek dualism, uh, Greek philosophical thought. And then there's a subsequent denial of the necessity of obedience and love. That's what we're going to see uh, as we get into the book. So this all leads us to the third thing that we need to know about the book, and that is the purpose. What is the purpose of 1 John? The purpose is twofold. It is, uh, it's both pastoral and also polemical. Polemical, that might not be a word you're familiar with, but polemical means to intentionally critique another teaching. By the way, I see on Twitter all the time that pastors shouldn't critique others, that pastors shouldn't argue with others or whatever it might be. Unfortunately, a good portion of the Bible is doing just that. A good pastor feeds the sheep, yes, but a good pastor also fights the wolves. That's what John's doing here. He's not merely feeding the sheep, but he's also fighting the wolves at the same time. In fact, the most common charge to pastors that we see throughout the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, the most common charge to pastors in the pastoral epistles is to protect the church by guarding the flock, by guarding truth, by guarding teaching. As a Christian, my primary charge is to love others. As a pastor, my primary charge is to protect truth and doctrine by, tr uh, by preaching and teaching the Word of God. For whatever reason, 
my son has, uh, has not been uh, sleeping. Maybe it's colic or, or a reflux or something like that. So we spend a lot of time trying to comfort him using the five uh, S's of, uh, of trying to soothe a child. Are you familiar with these five S's? So it's things like we swaddle and shush and sway. Never shake. Don't get that one confused. Uh, with the hope of accomplishing two more S's, right? Sleep for my child and sanity for us, right? That's the goal uh, for us. Well, John is going to give us four S's as well. I stole this from someplace, but it was a long time ago, so I don't remember what it is. But he gives us these four S's. As we just mentioned, the historical context of the book suggests that some had professed faith in Christ and yet had walked away from the church. And so therefore, a number of people in the church were scared. They were confused. And so Paul, uh, I'm sorry, John writes this letter in order to soothe, in order to comfort And so he gives us these four uh, S's. The first one is satisfaction. That 1 John was written to promote joy. So look at 1 John 1.4. 1 John 1.4, which says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That's the first purpose of the book. The second one, sanctification. 1 John was written to prevent sin. So first, satisfaction. 1 John was written to promote joy. Second, sanctification. First John was written to prevent sin. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. But my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. The third purpose, safety. First John was written to protect from false teaching. Look at 2.21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And look at 2.26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So the third purpose is safety, that 1 John was written to protect from false teaching. Fourth, security. 1 John was written to provide assurance of salvation. Look at 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So satisfaction, sanctification, safety, and security. As I mentioned uh, in the opening illustrations, one of the most dominant themes of the book is answering this question, how do you know that you have eternal life? How do you know, to use the language of 1 John, that you are born of God, that you're born again, that you are a a child of God? And so John uh, provides for us three historical evidence, kind of like a a prosecutor is looking for uh, motive, means, and opportunity. Well, 1 John is, uh, is giving us three different evidences. The prosecutor is trying to prove that someone is guilty. First John is getting, given to prove to ourselves that we are a child of God. We may think of these as uh, three litmus tests of our faith. How do you know that you're born again? How do you know that you're a child of God? Here are three tests according to First John. Faith, obedience, and love. Faith, obedience, and love. Notice as we go through each of these that each of these tests is going to explicitly relate to some implication of the false teaching that we were just talking uh, about. A false teaching that denied the incarnation of Christ, denied the importance of sanctification, and denied the implication of loving our brothers and sisters. And so we'll see each of these as we go through the book. So it doesn't matter if you grasp it fully now. We'll be in this uh, three tests over the next 10 months or something. But the first test, again, is faith, or the first test is theological. That is, do you believe the right things about God in general and Jesus in particular? 
That doesn't mean that you have a doctorate in theology. That doesn't mean that you perfectly understand things like predestination or the problem of evil. That doesn't mean that you understand all of the different ologies like homartiology and eschatology and soteriology. Those are important. That's why we do theological equipping classes. Those are really important for your edification, for your encouragement, for your equipping as a disciple. But that's not the type of theology that First uh, John is talking about. First John is more concerned with elementary truths. These basic beliefs the things that you must hold in order to be a Christian. In other words, there is this baseline foundation of faith, believing the right things about Jesus in regards to His humanity, in regards to His deity, in regards to substitutionary atonement, in regards to resurrection, and these kinds of things. So that's the first thing, this test of faith, this theological test. The second one is a test of obedience. The second test is moral. That is, do you want to be sanctified? Are you progressing in your hatred of sin? Or are you apathetic? Are you complacent? Are you content with your holiness or lack thereof? Again, that doesn't mean that you're perfected. In fact, you'll find the more that you grow in holiness, the, the more that you recognize in light of God's infinite holiness, how unholy you still are. It's kind of like uh, Aslan says to, uh, to Lucy and Prince, Cas uh, Prince Caspian, every year you grow, you will find God bigger. That's kind of the idea there. So the moral test doesn't mean moral perfection. In fact, 1 John would uh, critique those who say they have no sin. So the moral test isn't perfection, but rather do you have a general disposition of wanting to grow in holiness, of wanting to be conformed to the image of Christ? Do you have a general discontentment with sin in your life? That's the second test, a test of obedience, a moral test. The third test is love, or the third test, another way to say it, is social. That is, does your faith overflow into love for others? In other words, vertical love always, vertical love for God always overflows into horizontal love for others, especially other believers in the context of 1 John. So those are the three evidences or tests that the book is going to give us to grant us assurance, faith, obedience, and love. A theological test, a moral test, and a social test. We'll see those over and over and over again. Not just once. They are like a chorus of a song that we'll encounter multiple times as we progress through 1 John. The book of 1 John isn't really linear, kind of like Paul's argument is a very linear argument. Instead, John is writing in a very circular sort of manner. So we're going to see the same themes come up over and over. He's going to give this theological test and then as an implication for that, he's going to show us the moral test and the social test. And then later we're going to see another theological test, and then moral and social, and on and on through the book again in these uh, progressive cycles. So with all of that in mind, let's finally get to the actual text of 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, which says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now that's pretty confusing for a couple of reasons. First, as, uh, as Mike said, it isn't a complete sentence. And the second, the entire section is really going to seem out of order. So what I want to do is I want to kind of give an overview of this entire section. As, uh, as Mike referenced, the, uh, the entire first four verses in Greek is actually a sentence. And so I want to read that entire sentence 
in order to give us sort of context to make more sense. So 1 John 1, 1 through 4, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So there is a sense in which we could have just preached this entire section uh, in this first week, but we needed to deal with some of the introductory things and there's some really big concepts in here. So we actually broke it down into a uh, few weeks. But again, this is a bit confusing because it seems out of order. In, uh, in English, we have a particular way of wanting to read things with the, the subject and then the verb and then the object and that kind of stuff that isn't as important in, uh, in Greek. So things are a little bit out of order. So I want to rearrange this for you by giving you the opening paragraph just in summary form. So we're going to put this up on the screen. This is my summary of the first four verses of uh, 1 John. We declare to you what was from the beginning, which we have witnessed by seeing, hearing, and touching, so that you may have fellowship with us as we have fellowship with God, and so that our joy may be complete. So that's the overview of this opening section. Again, we'll spend a couple of weeks in this in order to work through individual parts. But today's text really just hits upon three different questions, three different sections to our text in 1 John 1, uh, 1 if we could go back to, uh, to that. The, the first question, what does that which was from the beginning mean? The second one, what's the deal with all these qualifiers? Like it says that uh, that which we have seen, which we have looked upon, which we have touched, which we have heard. And then the third question, what is the word of life? That's it for today. That's the three questions that we want to answer. What does beginning mean? What about these three qualifiers of sensory perception? And then what is the word of life? So let's start with the question of beginning. What does it mean that which was from the beginning? All right. So the Greek word there is arche. It's where we get the word archaic as in old or even archetype, as in like the first of something. RK is used eight times in the first John. This is kind of a, a big word in, uh, in the book of first John, but it's used in a few different ways, so that can, can be kind of confusing. Sometimes it means the beginning of when the audience was saved, when they first heard the gospel, when they're born again. Uh, so the beginning would be the beginning of their regeneration. For instance, first John 2.24 says, let what, you, what, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. That's one way it's used. Other times, it means the beginning of creation. We see that in 1 John 3.8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This is a clear allusion to the fact that the devil is there in the garden, kind of immediately after we see in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and, uh, and the earth. So the beginning there, the, the, the devil is not eternal. So the beginning there is the beginning of uh, creation. So the beginning has various usage in the book of uh, uses in the book of First John, but it's being used here in verse one in particular, in reference to Christ's eternality. So the beginning here doesn't mean the beginning of the gospel. It doesn't mean the beginning of creation, but the beginning of existence, which never really began because God is eternal. So how do we know? That beginning here is a reference to the eternality of Christ. Well, there's a few reasons for that. Number one, in subsequent verses, 
we'll see this phrase, eternal life, that is going to be used. So the eternality of Christ is already uh, in, uh, in play there in verse 1. Second, that seems to be the way that beginning functions in 1 John 2.13. If you want to look at that. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. That seems to imply the eternality of, uh, of Christ again. But probably most importantly, the most important reason, the, the most profound reason for thinking that the beginning uh, is uh, a reference to Christ's eternality, that is that he has no beginning, that he's always existed, is that it provides an illusion, not illusion like a magic trick, but illusion uh, with an A, an illusion to the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, which says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So look at John 1, and look at 1 John 1, 1, side by side, and notice the similarity there. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. That's John 1, 1, 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. You see the similarity there, in the beginning and from the beginning, the Word and the Word of life. Was the Son of God present at creation? Yes, absolutely. But was that the beginning of the Son of God? No. So from the beginning here in the opening of 1 John doesn't imply that the Word of life has a beginning. He was incarnated at a particular time and place, but the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is eternal. He has always been. To rebuke the heretic Arius, there was never a time when the Son was not. So that's from the beginning. The eternality of God. We'll see or the eternality of, uh, of the Son of God in particular. And we'll see that as we dive into the book in the next couple of weeks. After that, we have this series of four qualifiers of sensory perception. It says, uh, that which we have heard, that which we have seen, that which we have looked upon and touched. Which is fascinating because we find that that which is eternal is also made manifest in time and space. When to use the language of John's gospel, the Word is made flesh. So what are these qualifiers, these, uh, these, uh, these aspects of sensory perception? What are they doing in this text? Well, they're actually doing a couple of things. The first thing that they're doing is they're showing us, the, uh, they're providing for us eyewitness testimony. This is really important for understanding one of the major unique claims of Christianity, one of the distinctives of Christianity as opposed to all other world religions, which is that historicity is not irrelevant. Whether there was ever really a guy named Buddha or not, it's somewhat irrelevant to the claims of Buddhism. Whether or not the, uh, the Hindu creation narratives are actually historically accurate or not, it's somewhat irrelevant to the claims of Hinduism. But in Christianity, if this doesn't have, if, if the events that you see in the Bible don't actually have historical accuracy, then the entire faith unravels. So not only is this going to provide eyewitness testimony to the, the importance of the historicity of the Gospels, but it's also it's going, to, it's going to provide some context for us to understand the role of eyewitnesses, which is unique in regards to Christianity. That as Paul will say, there are hundreds of witnesses to the resurrection, which is really fascinating. That's really unique as opposed to all other religions. How many people were there with Muhammad in a cave as he supposedly received these visions from God. 
Just him. In fact, if you study historically, Muhammad actually goes home and he tells his wife, I've seen a demon. If only he would have listened uh, to himself instead of listening to his wife in that moment because she convinces him, no, this is actually of God, and thus Islam is born. How many people were witness to Joseph Smith as he receives the golden plates? Just him. Nobody else is around. Christianity is unique among all the religions of the world because it actually is grounded in historical events with objective historical eyewitness accounts. Every, uh, every Christmas, every Easter, you'll hear some quote-unquote priest or quote-unquote pastor say something profound. Like even if the virgin birth isn't true, even if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, that Christianity is still worth celebrating. For instance, here's a quote I found by the president of Union Theological Seminary. Her name is Dr. Serena Jones. You call her Dr. Jones. She says, but for me... The message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. That's a much more awesome claim than that they put Jesus in the tomb and three days later he wasn't there. For Christians for whom the physical erection becomes a sort of obsession, that seems to me a pretty wobbly faith. What if tomorrow someone found the body of Jesus still in the tomb? Would that then mean that Christianity was a lie? No, faith is stronger than that. By the way, in the same interview, this president of a seminary also said that she couldn't believe in the virgin birth because it was somehow oppressive to women, obviously. Now, that's the kind of sugary theology that gets all kinds of public cultural praise and admiration and applause and celebration and those kinds of things. But you know what it actually is? It's hogwash. I don't even know what hogwash is, but that's what that is. According to 1 Corinthians, if Christ hasn't actually been risen from the dead... If this is not actually historically true, here are a few things that are true. According to Paul, if Christ is not risen from the dead, number one, preaching the gospel is useless. Number two, faith in Christ is worthless. Number three, every witness to the resurrection was a deluded liar. Number four, Christianity is a fairy tale. Number five, all of humanity remains captive to sin Number six, everyone who died is in eternal hell. And number seven, Christians are the most foolish people on earth. Does that sound like something that is worth celebrating? Absolutely not. So there's only two options. That Jesus Christ is not the eternal Word made flesh and thus should be discarded, neglected, maybe even mocked and ridiculed, or He is the God-man who should be worshipped and served. There is no middle ground according to the claims of Christianity. So these qualifiers point us to the historicity of the incarnation and the role of eyewitness testimony. The second thing that they do is they set the stage for the later polemic. Remember we said that this book is not only pastoral, it's also polemical. The polemic against the false teaching that would deny the incarnation. If the word of life was seen, if the word of life was looked upon and touched, then clearly we cannot say that the physical material world is innately evil or lesser or not important or insignificant or whatever it might be. The idea that the eternal Word of God could be heard, touched, and seen would have been culturally offensive, not only in Greek cultures but also to Jewish cultures. In Jewish thought, God was spirit, and He shared His glory with no man. So the idea of actually worshiping a man, Jesus Christ, would have been culturally offensive and insensitive. In Greek thought, we've already talked about Platonism, 
Platonic thought and its belief that all that's good is spiritual and immaterial and anything that's physical is evil or wicked or whatever it might be. So for God to manifest Himself physically, to embody Himself, to incarnate Himself was absurd, was foolish. In short, the doctrine of creation is foolish. The incarnation is foolish. The earthly ministry of Christ is foolish. The actual death of Christ is foolish. The resurrection is certainly foolish. And yet throughout John, we'll see hints about the physicality, the materiality of the word of life. Not only here in this opening with the touched and looked upon and heard and all of those kinds of things, but elsewhere in 1 John. Look at 1 John 4.2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses what? That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And John's Gospel says the same. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. And 2 John will say the same. 2 John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So this embodied, this eyewitnessed message in a man is what the author is declaring concerning the Word of life. So let's look at that phrase, Word of life. That could also be translated as Word who is life. In other words, life is an attribute of the Word. The Word is life, and thus He's the source of life. That He distributes His attributes. He provides what He possesses, eternal life. Life is something that you and I are given. It's something that the Son of God just is. It's innate to Him, whereas it's given to us. By the way, did you know that of all the uses of the phrase eternal life in the Bible, that over half of them occur in John's writing. So that's one of the big thematic motifs of, uh, of the book of uh, 1 John. Whereas Paul is going to talk more about redemption and justification, he uses these words. John is going to more focus on the results or the rewards of redemption and justification, including eternal life. So now let's ask the question, why does he refer to the person and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Why does he refer to that as the word of life? Why does he use the word word? Well, there's a few reasons for that. The first one being to keep the allusion back to the gospel of John. We read that before. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and later the word becomes flesh. So that's the first reason. He chooses a word, no pun intended, that would point back to the gospel, which he had already written. The second reason that he uses the word word is to connect the person and work of Jesus with God's creative and redemptive activities throughout history. That God creates the world, how? By speaking. He says, let there be light. He creates by His Word. And how does He redeem? He redeems by His Word. He says, let my people go. He calls Abraham. He calls Moses. He delivers Israel. All of these sorts of things. So this connects, this use of the Word language here in 1 John connects the story of what's going on in the New Covenant with what's going on in the Old Testament. It connects what's going on in the church with what's happening within Israel. Creation and redemption through the Word of God. The third thing it does is it reminds us that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word. In other words, Christianity is concerned with truth. It's concerned with theology. It's concerned with doctrine. It's concerned with statements of fact. Faith is more than a feeling. It's more than something which we experience. It can be expressed through words, through sentences, through truths. And then most importantly, 
the use of the word demonstrates this inextricable link between the man and the message. The person of Jesus and the proclamation of God. Look uh, briefly at Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, which says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. In other words, Jesus Christ is the final and decisive Word of God to mankind. He is the fullness of the revelation of God to us. Which is why Jesus will say things like, I came to bear witness to the truth, but then He'll also say, I am the truth. This is why Jesus will tell His disciples, abide in My Word. And He will also say, abide in Me, because there is no disconnect between the Word of God and the Word of God. There's no disconnect between the Word of God that is uh, incarnated in Jesus Christ and the Word of God that is inscripturated within the Holy Scriptures. You cannot abide in Jesus without abiding in His Word. Which means, if you ever wonder why we're so passionate here at Parkway about knowing the Bible, about preaching the Bible, about teaching the Bible, that's the reason. We're passionate about knowing the Word of God inscripturated, that is the Word of God that you see in Scripture, you see in your Bible, that you actually read because we're passionate about the Word of God incarnated. We're passionate about the personal work of Jesus Christ. We love and trust and worship Jesus too much to not exalt and exult in His Word. Occasionally I'll hear someone claim that pastors and theologians who talk about the Bible all the time are in danger of worshiping the Bible rather than the Son. They're in danger of worshiping the Scriptures rather than the Son. Again, that sounds profound. But it too is hogwash. Let me give an example of why that's terribly misleading, and then I want to give a closing admonition uh, to us. Imagine, if you will, that I'm on a, uh, a mission trip or something like that in some faraway exotic land like Cambodia or Arkansas or something. <laughs> and my wife and, uh, and my children are not with me, but I'm over there for weeks on end, and so obviously I really terribly miss them and so every day I spend an hour on the phone with them. Sometimes I'm uh, FaceTiming them. Sometimes I'm sending them a, a video on Marco Polo. Sometimes I'm texting them or whatever it might be. And so you see me occasionally on my, uh, on my phone. Do you think Jeff is so obsessed with his phone? He's so infatuated with his phone. He's always talking to his phone. He's always touching his phone. He's always tickling its keys. He's always staring at his phone. Would you think that? Would you think I'm just infatuated with my phone? Of course not. You would recognize instead that the phone is the means, in fact, the only means of communicating with the one that I truly adore, that I truly treasure, that I truly love. Likewise with the Bible. Do I love the Bible? Absolutely. Do I wake up each day and get a cup of coffee and go into a room and close the door and read my Bible and pray? Absolutely. That's the only quiet time I get. I have a newborn child, and I work with Zach Lee and Tim Hollis. I get no quiet time other than that. So I love that. That's the best part of my day. But do I worship the Bible? No, I don't worship the Bible. I love the Bible because it's the only certain means by which I have access to the one that I really worship, that I treasure, that I cherish, that I love. The Word of Life 
has been incarnated in Jesus Christ, the God-man, and it has been inscripturated in the Word of God, the Holy Bible. So may we be a people who aren't afraid or aren't ashamed of our love for Scripture because we love the Son of God. God. That's my hope as we embark on this journey through 1 John, that not only would our passion be inflamed for the Son of God, but our passion would be inflamed for the Word of God, because in the Word of God, we see the Son of God. But before we close this morning, I want to give this one pastoral word of encouragement, this admonition to us as a congregation. The purpose of this book, as we mentioned, is, uh, is polemical and pastoral. It's written for our satisfaction, it's written for our sanctification, it's written for our safety, it's written for our security. And part of the way that it does that is by giving us these three litmus tests of faith, obedience, and love, the theological, a moral, and a social test. So here's my word of encouragement or caution. The enemy, and there is an enemy, we'll read about it in 1 John, the enemy would want nothing more than to use what God has given as a means of encouragement to actually discourage you. He would, uh, he would intend what God has intended for good, the enemy would intend for evil. Imagine that you have a home, and in that home you have something for self-protection. A baseball bat, a samurai sword. If you're here in Texas, you have a gun, right? Somebody breaks into your house, and they take that gun, and they actually use that gun that was intended to protect you. They use that gun to actually cause you pain and suffering. That's the enemy's ploy. That's the enemy's goal as we work through the book of 1 John. What God has intended to encourage His people, the enemy will use to discourage you. God has given these tests in particular, and He's given this book in general in order to grant you assurance and comfort and joy, but the enemy delights in nothing more than to use these for the exact opposite purpose. So as we're working through 1 John, He will tell you that your faith your obedience, your love, they're not strong enough. Your theology isn't good enough. You're too sinful. You're too unloving. You must not be a believer because you struggle or you have doubts or you have fears or whatever it might be. So if over the next two, 10 months, as we're in this book together, if, over, if during that time you feel conviction that's compelling you, compelling you to repentance, compelling you to faith, compelling you to love, compelling you to holiness, that's the Spirit. But if in the next 10 months you instead feel condemnation leading to shame, leading to apathy, leading to fear, leading to anxiety, that's not the work of the Spirit. That's the work of the enemy. So may we not be ignorant of his schemes as we embark upon this journey. As we'll see in 1 John, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the enemy. So with that promise and hope in mind, let's pray as the men come forward to serve communion. Father, I thank You for the book of 1 John. I thank You for the reality of the eternal Word made flesh, who is Your Son and who is our life. I pray that You would sanctify the study of this book, that it might awaken in us, better theology, fuller obedience, and deeper love in this church for Your glory and for our joy. We ask these things with hope and expectation. 
because you're a good Father who gives good gifts. So we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.